Welcome to Chief Everything Officer, a podcast for entrepreneurs who do it all. We are sponsored by Juntobot, an impact-oriented venture school and studio focused on designing and scaling startup ecosystems for the future. Today's interview guest is Devin Vorsinger, the CEO of Juntobot. Welcome, Devin. Thank you for being here. Why don't you begin by telling me a little bit about your company? Like when you were founded, how many people are part of your team? Just what is Juntobot? So Juntobot is a platform for universal basic entrepreneurship. It's based off of a problem I've been trying to solve for about 10 years now. And if I dig deeper into some of the different businesses I've started, it's a problem I've been trying to solve for about 25 years, which is how do you make businesses successful? How do you unblock a business? I've looked at that through the lens of marketing. I've looked at that through the lens of software. I've looked at that through the lens of investment. I've looked at that through the lens of incubation. And um, what I found is that it's it's all of the above. So these little pieces of problems that need to be solved. Uh, and people are in the business of doing the least amount of work they can for the most amount of money. So what ends up happening is people who are selling you these services will only focus on different types of businesses, uh, the ones that are most profitable for them. And I find that founders and businesses that are valuable, but are not the most lucrative to a service offering end up being left behind. Uh, And I wanted to create a platform to help people create their own businesses. You know, this was a, this was a reaction to, uh, you know, to a certain degree. And the reason why I call it universal basic entrepreneurship is as a reaction to universal basic income. Uh, which was kind of uh, really brought into the public awareness by um, by Yang during his presidency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, I find more often than not, people presenting universal basic income are looking at a way to to put a bandaid on the problem. We have uh, we've automated you out of your job. We have innovated our way out of needing a service or a product that you've been providing like coal. We, we don't need you to put the bumpers on these cars. Uh, we don't need, you know, whatever it might be. And uh, somebody's figured out a way to do it cheaper with automation and they get rid of you. And what they want to do is they want to solve the problem by giving you some money to keep you sh- to shut up until you die mm-hmm. so that you don't, it, we don't have a second French revolution. Yeah. My thought process is what if you just got laid off from your job, all right? You and a thousand people from your company got laid off from your job because they said they can do your job with a robot and one person. Okay, great. Why don't I do this? Why don't I give you the robot? Why don't I teach you to be a CEO and teach your 10 of your friends who just got laid off how to be high-performing operators within a business that you're running teach you how to be a great leader and a great business manager and create a great business with 10 people using automation. Well, we just learned that you can do the work of a thousand people with a robot and one person. What can 10 people with 10 robots or automation software, whatever it might be, do? Now you've got a hundred thousand person firm in the office of 10 people and you're building your dream. And you're solving one of the world's problems in a way that makes money for you and it solves the, the problem. And, and it's not a legacy company. Some of these companies, companies were built back when, you know, completely raping the earth and just, just 
clear cutting an entire mountain was just the way you do business. Payday loans where everybody but the bank loses, just the way you do business. But I think we're a little bit more awake now to the fact that a business does not live in a, a in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And yeah. stakeholder capitalism is a lot easier to build a business around when you've thought through it. That's basically all the problems that we're trying to solve. How to okay. unblock businesses, how to uh, how to enfranchise um, founders. And we focus on founders from underrepresented communities. For most people, that just means black or brown. We don't just focus on black or brown. We think there's a lot of work to be done in black or brown. There's a lot of great companies helping us uh, to solve that problem. But then there's also historically poor. There is you know, Native Americans. There is first-generation uh, immigrants. There, there are a number of different communities all across the globe and across the country that we feel are really valuable. And we see that the value is not necessarily just a certain type of business, business but creating multicultural organizations that pull the value from those different cultures and create vibrant teams that are more valuable than a monoculture, say, all men or all Ivy Leaguers or all women or all blacks or all whites. It's multiple viewpoints from multiple backgrounds or or all liberals or all conservatives, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one thing that just blows my mind is we lose leave so much value on the table because you're a conservative and I'm a liberal. So obviously you're the devil and you're like, obviously he's an idiot mm-hmm. and we don't talk. Yeah. Right? Whereas you have some really good points. I disagree with 70 of 70% mm-hmm. of them. And I have some really good points. You disagree with 70, but we, we won't listen to each other for those 30 that could be, that we could work with because of politics, right. Yeah. Or religion or the fact that I'm terrified that you're gay or you're terrified because I'm a man and I'm going to be a misogynist. And we don't have a conversation. Mm-hmm. So that is a lot of what we do is team building and working on how to enfranchise teams and how to enfranchise people who have you up till now normally been enfranchised because it wasn't worth it to somebody. Mm-hmm. So that's who to buy. So you would say that the problem that you're trying to solve is kind of just the barriers that exist for productive expansion of businesses for entrepreneurs trying to get started, whether that be like anything cultural, um, political. Uh, mm-hmm. like language barriers, all kinds of stuff like that, just overcoming those? Well, there's a term, it's a Japanese term called ikagai, which I love. The ikagai concept is a Venn diagram. It's four basic circles, right? Um, w- what you love, what the world needs, what you can be paid for, and what you're good at, right? In the middle is your ikagai. So what you love and what you're good at the intersection of those two is your passion. What you love and what the world needs, that's your mission. Mm-hmm. What the world needs and what you can be paid for, that's your vocation. What you're good at and what you can be paid for, that's your profession. And a lot of people just fall in those intersections and never get to the Ikaga. We're trying to help people build their Ikaga. What gotcha. does the world need? Yeah, but, yeah. But not like, I can't tell you how many nonprofits I've worked with that they're like, well, look at the sad pictures of the little kids or the animals or the environment, or look at these awful numbers about women women not getting paid as much as men, or whatever it might be that they're trying to solve from a nonprofit standpoint. No concept about how to do this in a financially stable way, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And they don't feel like that is, that's an icky question to ask. Oh, no, no, we don't talk about money. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm sorry, but your landlord does, right? <laughs> True. Um, you know? 
and on the reverse side, for-profit businesses, I'm like, dude, think about like, think about the little kids, think about the environment, think about your stakeholders that are beyond just the people giving you money for your product. Mm-hmm. How do you create a double-sided innovation uh, funnel of innovation that provides value for your company and provides value for your customer and for the environment and all the stakeholders involved? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's what we're looking at. Okay. So um, in today's economic climate, it can be really difficult to stick with a business when it, you encounter inevitably hurdles and um, just things in general that make it really tough. So what keeps you motivated to continue to go after this? What keeps you motivated? That's a really hard question <laughs> on a daily basis. Uh, the, you know, what keeps me motivated a, is my team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I'm on a call with you. So, yes. I mean, <laughs> uh, but in, in all seriousness, uh, I, I found, you know, I have been, a solo entrepreneur and I've been a team entrepreneur and I found that the team is what gets you past the rough batches. Mm-hmm. Just having somebody to talk about, having somebody to yell at you when you don't get it done on time, having somebody to joke about, having something to commiserate, you know, having, you know when the bad times happen, you all, everyone's like, wow, that really sucked that that happened. Like having somebody in the room to, to, to that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, from personal motivation, I have three big, hairy, audacious goals. And those people who know me know that I always do what I say. I am more often than not proven right after a certain amount of time. And I usually will say I'm going to do something that people are like, yeah, sure. And I get it done. So my first big, hairy, audacious goal is I want to make the world 5% better. I don't need to make the world 100% better. I don't need to solve global warming. I don't need to solve gender equality. I don't need to solve economic disparities in the world. But I'm going to make the world 5% better. That's what my mother taught me. You walk into a room, you pick up the trash. You go to somebody's house, take the trash out to the curb. Just make it a 5% better. Like You don't have to clean their house. You don't have to paint their house. You don't have to put in an addition. Just make it a little bit better from you being there. And if we all did that, the world would be in a better place. It's that most people, you know, 70, 80% of the world walks in, they're like, great, well, maybe I can pocket that cute little figurine on the while nobody's looking. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, be additive, don't be reductive. Yeah. If you're all a little bit additive, then it, it rises everything. Every everybody does better. I want to mm-hmm. make the world five percent better. So I focus on social impact issues from a for-profit standpoint. There are businesses that could be made to solve one of the United Nations Societal Development Goals that, in fact, are for profit. Mm-hmm. You're making money, you know, like like a carbon exchange mm-hmm. where, like, you're selling your carbon coins, right? Mm-hmm. Like Elon Musk. I mean, he's on the news from he's being an idiot right now. But a friend of mine, Turaj, he runs a company called Pearl Street up in New York, and he had a great post. He's like, when you're creating clean tech. When you're creating social impact, you want to create social impact like Elon Musk. Elon Musk created a great car, full stop. It's one of the best cars in the industry. It also is good for the environment. So if you're solving for the environment, making a product that's the best in class and also does this, don't expect people to take less than because you have an impact mm-hmm. involved. Yeah. Um, second big, hairy, audacious goal is bringing manufacturing back to the United States, bringing back the concept of making things, 
mm-hmm. as opposed to buying things, as opposed to going to Walmart and paying $3 for something that should cost $50, shipping all of my money to China and never giving any maker in my community the money to learn, the ability to learn and build and provide value within their community. I spend most of my money on Kickstarter and on Etsy. Hmm. I buy from cottage industry companies. I hike a lot. I will not buy from large hiking companies. I buy from cottage industry companies mm-hmm. as much as possible. And it costs more. American Giant sells great sweatshirts. They cost four times as much as a normal sweatshirt, but they're made here and they're made sustainably and it's worth it. I bought one for my wife. She's on year five of it and it looks, still looks excellent. I mean, like it really looks like a good sweatshirt. It's really nice. Mm-hmm. Because it's such high quality. And I know that money is going to manufacturers. It's going to cotton growers. I don't know where they are, but they're in America. And it's going Mm -hmm. to manufacturers. It's going to mill workers in North Carolina, weavers in North Carolina, cutters in North Carolina. And they're, they're building that whole thing. And then they're shipping it to California. And then California is shipping it everywhere. Mm -hmm. So all that money is going locally. And we don't do that enough. We spent all of the eighties, nineties and aughts, shipping all those jobs elsewhere. And it's not that other countries shouldn't have those jobs. It's that we got rid of a whole generation of makers of the ability to make your own things. I fix everything here. I fix everything here. But I have an electric toothbrush that I bought in like 1995 and it broke. And I'm like, well, that's a fun puzzle. Let me figure out how to fix that. And nobody does it anymore. Like I can't mm-hmm. tell you, I, I literally yeah. talk to people and I'm like, yeah, you know, I was I'm I'm just going to I'm not going to buy an electric car. I'm going to buy like a, an 80s car and convert it to electric. And people are like, "Why would you do that? You have that's so much cool. better use of your time because that's cool. It's fun to do." And people are like just like, "No, no, no. I rich people pay people to do their work." No, man, like smart people do their own work. And we lost that concept at some point. Mm-hmm. So bring back that manufacturing, bring yeah. back that capability. Yeah. So that small businesses can manufacture their stuff here. They have that choice. They can provide high quality manufacturing and the, and the people that work in that factory can buy their stuff because they're getting a living wage. All of that, that jump starts our economy in a way that fancy financial things won't do or won't do as well, I think. Right. And then I, I really want to enfranchise underrepresented founders. Mm-hmm. Right? My old company before this one, I ran a startup incubator in uh, at the City College of New York. And we started off 10% of the program was women. And it was mm-hmm. like, well, what do we do? Well, I mean, we hired, first of all, we hired specifically somebody to focus on that. And she was excellent mm-hmm. at what she did. But she couldn't have done it by herself. It really took the entire organization to focus on making sure this happened. And we, when that happened, when we all focused on it, we made it happen. In like a year and a half, two years, we went from 10% to 50%. Year three, we were at 55%. We had to take a foot off the gas because this isn't a woman-only program. And it was mm-hmm. getting there, right? So when people are like, well, having a really hard time finding women for a bullshit. Like, we can do it. We had no money. We had a mighty staff of four people. Mm-hmm. We were able to do it. You can do it. And it's the same thing with like Native Americans, with African Americans, with Hispanics, with first-gen immigrants, like, well, I don't really, I uh, can't do, no, you can do it. You just, you're just too lazy to solve the problem, right? And I hate, I hate the use language that strong, but if you're smart enough and you're dedicated enough to 
solving the problem, you can find the value in Native American founders. You can find the value in female founders and you can figure out how to enfranchise them. You can find the value in African-American founders and you can enfranchise. Or you can say no and let somebody else do it. I'm happy for you to do that. That's what we're doing. If you, the listener, doesn't want to enfranchise Native American founders, we'll do it and we'll get the we'll reap the rewards of that. There are plenty of African-American-led venture capital firms that are now getting spun up that are investing in African-American founders. And when the next African-American unicorn pops out, you know who's getting the returns from that investment? Not that white racist. The next female founder, the next Bumble, the guy who's who doesn't invest in women because they're not a good ROI, he ain't, he's not getting his beak wet, mm-hmm. right? I hate that term, by the way. <laughs> the person who uses it, if they hear this and they hear me, yes, I hate when you say that because it is really specifically say, I am no longer interested in you as a company. I'm interested in, you're just a commodity. I'm just getting a little taste of your company as opposed to we support companies. Mm-hmm. We support founders. It's not about getting my beak wet. It's about supporting a founder and building their dream. Mm-hmm. Figuring out how to enfranchise that. And it's a really serious business. And I can't tell you how many people in the flush times really treated it like really treated it in a very icky way, which really turned me off to the venture capital industry. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why I started Huntabot and mm-hmm. why we don't take equity because the venture capital equity game is a Ponzi scheme. I invest in your business. I get 5% equity. The only way for me to make money off of that is for somebody else to buy my equity. So then I force you to grow unsustainably. And now you're, wow, you're worth a hundred million. And I sell you to this other guy. And now my 5% was worth nothing. It's now worth 30 mil. And I get 30 mil and I'll walk away. Mm -hmm. And then he does the same thing. He makes you pump it. And most of that money goes to uh, Facebook and Google to ads for unsustainable growth that is not based off of your product. It's based purely off of the advertising. And they sell it up the road, right? So we Mm -hmm. don't take equity because we're trying to figure out how to really provide a service that is valuable enough for you to pay us, right? Or valuable enough for somebody to pay us to do. So maybe somebody will scholarship in a business and 20% of every dollar we make, we put into our own scholarship fund. We have a for-profit and a non-profit. Mm -hmm. The for-profit is how we make money. The non-profit is how we make impact. Okay. You know, so, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's my passion. Cool. Nice. So, Obviously, you know what you're doing with Huntobot. Um, there's a strategy in place. There's motivation behind well, it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, other companies like, like example, Apple or Nike, they've built their brands on knowing their customers. Um, mm. And that's a huge part of what has given them the success. Mm. So, and you always tell us that the two things a company can't steal are what you know about your customer and what they know about you. Mm-hmm. So, that being said, can you tell us a little bit about your customers? What do you know about them? So what I know about my customers is that they have some of the deepest responsibility in an organization. You haven't known stress until it's two in the morning and you're trying to figure out how to make payroll and founders have that problem. So you think like as a founder, your only problem is, well, how do I make money? Or how do I get somebody to invest in my business? Or how do I build this product? Or how do I get it manufactured? Or how do I hire? 
These are all problems a founder has. And each one of them is so weighty of a problem that eventually if you make money, you hire somebody who's an expert in doing that and has been doing it for 20 years mm -hmm. to be the person who does that. But as a founder for the first five years, you're doing all of that. And then on top of that, you have this huge stress of the responsibility of giving somebody the salary for their business. And I can't tell you how like three quarters of these gray hairs are that as mm -hmm. me trying to figure out where where your paycheck is coming from. It's it's a really big responsibility. So they take upon themselves, founders take upon themselves a really huge responsibility. And, and if they don't give a crap about that responsibility, I should point out, because somebody's like, ah, I don't give a crap about that. Great. I don't want you as a customer. Yeah. Right. I don't want people who don't take that responsibility seriously. That's a really important point because there are people who are like, well, we hired all these people when we were flush and now we're going to let them go. That is a really crappy way to run a business. You ran a crappy business, sir. And it's now impacting 11,000 people. Hmm. You know, that is really, I have friends who've been laid off and like they now, their career is forever more impacted because of that layoff. It will always be on their resume. Studies have shown when you've been laid off, your salary is reduced. Like the overall amount of money, your trajectory, salary trajectory hmm. dips. And it's purely because this idiot didn't know how to run a business. It couldn't see that, the environment of COVID was not going to be the environment forever. So they like doubled their, their head count. Who doubles their head count, man? That's just ridiculous. Yeah. That's unsustainable growth. That's VC backed growth. It's an investment backed growth. It's just, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so what do I know about customers? So they have, the, they have that challenge. A. B, they have hustle. They have a certain amount of chutzpah. They have a value they can provide to the universe or a problem they want to solve. And they're hustling that. They're selling that. Uh, they're a graphic designer doing freelance work. They're a dog walker walking dogs. They're a Pilates instructor, uh, a yoga instructor. They're a nutritionist meal planning. They've got this little hustle that they're carving out within a larger environment. And they're trying to figure out how to systematize that hustle and how to turn that into a real business. Or they're that second one I was talking about where they, they've already started a company and they're trying to figure out how to stabilize that and scale that. And our customers, at least, like are solving serious problems. They might not seem serious. Like a meal planner, is that serious? Yes, it is. You're solving health. Mm -hmm. You're making sure people eat healthy within their budget. Pilates instructors, that's not serious. Pilates instructors, that's serious. You're helping people stay healthy, right? Mm -hmm. What I don't, the companies I don't want are the 65th dating app. What are you solving? You're solving people <laughs> like, like, what's the problem? Yeah. What's the problem you're solving? People, without any technology, people have been figuring out how to copulate for generations. They can figure out how to do it. Like you, you really don't need that. No app. dating apps, people would figure out how to meet each other, right? They would. They just get out of the way and go out. But in the meantime, you know, like there are really interesting companies. You know who I would love to work with? That kid who created that machine that goes out of the Pacific and eats garbage. Yeah. <laughs> that guy's, oh my God. He's looking at a problem he wants to solve. I also love people who are solving problems in their community. What's unique about your community that what you know, there's a problem that you know about your community that I don't know. Mm -hmm. right? um, I was just reading this book about, um, it's about how to help uh boys in middle school and high school and college they're being left behind um in the educational system mm -hmm. and they were talking about 
how boys mature versus girls and girls mm -hmm. mature two years faster like the whole brain matures faster so what ends up happening you're going to school at the same time but your experience is fundamentally different than my experience mm -hmm. you had two more years like imagine if you could go back right now with everything you know now go back to freshman year of high school what yeah. would you do differently? that's basically the superpower you have as yeah i don't have as a man i you are two years exponential understanding of the universe ahead of me and I'm trying to catch up, right? Mm -hmm. I'm talking about transformers and you're talking about philosophy. You think about what the rest of your world should look like. And I'm thinking about how do I get more chocolate? Right? <laughs> like, but no, but I mean, like, that's like, that's the mentality. Yeah. 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. Right. Which is why boys are so annoying. <laughs> because they're literally too young for you. Right. They're too young for the environment. They're in. we're putting people together. My point is, is that those viewpoints are fascinating. The background that, that solves that problem is fascinating. Yeah. So, I don't know. I think I meandered a little bit. Did I answer your question? Yeah, definitely. All right. Um, do you have any, like, sense of, I guess, what these customers' situational objection might be when you pitch them Huntobot? Sure. What is the thing that's, like, keeping them from taking what you're offering? A um, couple things, I find. One, there's literally thousands of people selling services similar to what we're selling at different levels they got different value propositions but more often than not it's a big waste of time mm -hmm. and it's like uh, if you will sit for 32 hours in our class you will get the theoretical knowledge about generally the history of marketing no dude that's called college i'm not going to pay you to do that they're like what i need to know how to make money i need customers the first iteration of Huntobot, i spent all the money i made selling my last company and I created this entire software package for small businesses. And I brought it to customers and they said, um, yeah, I don't want this. And I'm like, no, no, but you see, you can get the return on investment. You can see what the return on investment for your spaghetti sauce would be. So you can choose this spaghetti sauce versus this spaghetti sauce. He's like, dude, I run a pizza shop. I don't give a crap. I need customers. Can you get me customers? Every small business is, I go back to the, um, how do I make salary? Every small business is so razor thin, failure, success. How do I make money? How do I solve this problem? That's their situational objection always. How do mm -hmm. I get direct value from what I'm doing? So mm -hmm. that's why our entire program gotcha. is designed to not be a theoretical marketing strategy. This is an implementable, implementable step-by-step plan. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not like, teach me about marketing. It's no Teach me how to size my market so I know exactly what the size is market and I know when this market is worth entering. Like mm -hmm. specifically, I'm going to walk out at the end of that class with a market sized specifically and I know exactly what to do, right? That's, it, it's a fundamentally different approach because mm -hmm. it's deliverable based, not knowledge based or not theory based or not entertainment based. It's let me get you to the next step of getting something done. So the product that you're delivering is very, it's very much the opposite of one size fits all. Like the value you're providing it matches with what a customer's individual needs are. And you, part yeah. of the process is you meeting with them and identifying that need. Yeah. It's what we've tried to do is we try to figure out how to harness network effect. Mm -hmm. uh, and we find that community is the great differentiator here. Because there's only so much I can know about business. So what, what I can do is I can give a scaffolding 
-hmm. and then I can put in a room 10 Pilates instructors who are not co competitive mm -hmm. and help them to understand how to work together. I can put uh, 10 uh, house painters together who all know the house painting business mm -hmm. and they can tell each other how they've solved problems. And then when it's like, well, I don't know how to do a go-to-market plan. Boom. There's a junto about how to make a go-to-market plan. Well, I don't have time for this. Here's our apprentice program. We'll, we'll create the marketing plan for you. But the service is customized based off of the community. And we provide this underlying layer of like peanut butter on the sandwich of these services and what we call interventions. We'll mm -hmm. connect you with the with the mentor who knows how to do X. We'll connect you with an e-learning module, which will allow you to do this. We'll show you an article which which solves that problem. Mm -hmm. We'll get you that staff. We'll get so you can hire that staff that specifically you're looking for the finance person or the coder or the marketing person. It's those little interventions that don't need to be customized, and the customization happens in the community. Mm -hmm. Cool. So um, do you have a sense of how big your market is and like how you would penetrate it? Billions of dollars. Um, all right. Never mind. I'm too old. <laughs> You're too old for that reference. Uh, what was that old, the old, um, the old movie? Uh, we, all right. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> so uh, to the audience, that was basically an example of my conversation with my staff every day. I make an 80s or 90s movies reference. And they look at me blankly and laugh uncomfortably until we move on. Um, anyway. <laughs> um, so our market, let's just use the U.S. There's 27 million small businesses. That's our specific addressable market. Our total addressable market are anybody starting a business. But let's just say 27 million. And our yearly subscription fee is $200 if you buy it yearly. All right, so it's 27 million times $200. So what is that number? 5 billion, 400 million. That's what that market is worth to us. Mm -hmm. So I don't expect to get 27 million customers immediately, but we're trying to broadly service the small business industry. And we're trying to broadly service the small business industry. We're trying to narrowly focus on niche communities. Mm -hmm that they're not worth the time for people to pay attention to. Yeah, It's not worth spinning up a service organization to service the Navajo small business community. Mm -hmm. Why would you do that? That's like the worst business idea I've ever heard of. It isn't for Huntobot. It's a brilliant idea for Huntobot. Why would you spin up a consulting company for Pilates instructors? There's only 36,000 of them in the entire country. Like there's no way you can make enough money for mm -hmm. them unless you were just like a small little consulting shop. It's worth it to us, right? So we do these niche communities, either around identity, around geographic location, around problem solutions. So that intersection between the 27 million small businesses in the U.S. and those niche communities, mm -hmm. that's where our target market is. Because it needs to be valuable to a specific target market. It can't be one size fits all. It needs to be really valuable to meal planners or mm -hmm. house painters or print service companies or whatever it is. But we have to be able to provide a service that we're not recreating the wheel for every single person. Yeah. I'm going to circle back to talking kind of about those services a little bit because I do think like it could be confusing because I know Huntabot does a variety of things. So like what is like the primary product or products or services? Mm -hmm. Like how would you kind of summarize it? The primary service or product, and this is going to sound very markety, mm -hmm. is a, a company's success. Mm-hmm. 
is creating a support system, an operating system for running your business. All right. So what we do is we unblock you from discovering the problem you want to solve, creating a business that solves that problem, successfully starting that business up and scaling it and, and taking it as far as you want to go. Because I've had, I've worked with people who are like, look, I just, I don't want a multi-million dollar company. I just want enough money so I can pay off my payment for my Beamer and be able to pay my mortgage and date a cute girl and have two kids. That, that's all the money I want and be able to pay my staff. You know, I don't, I don't need a yacht. I don't need to be the next Jeff Bezos. I'm not looking mm -hmm. to create Facebook. I want a nice company that sheds $150,000 in profit for me. That's it. Yeah. Cool. That's cool. Right. I know some people would just be over the moon to be able to be running a company that had stable salary. They're making money. They can put some money in the bank doing what they love doing, teaching people how to play guitar, fixing guitars, you know, running a skateboard park. There's all these little weird niche businesses, which is somebody's passion. Mm -hmm. right? We're trying to create the support system so that I'm not telling you what's important. You're telling me what's important. I'll tell you how to make it successful. Yeah. yeah. And more often than not, I'm not telling you how because if I if I was the guru of success, I'd be significantly more successful. But I found a community of people solving the problem mm -hmm. help. But it's that operating system, a support system of success. That's what we're selling. Mm -hmm. What that looks like looks differently for every single yeah, person. Yeah. There might be an e-learning module, it might be a mm -hmm. consulting contract, it might be a design thing session, it might be an interaction with the municipal government to identify the problems they're looking to solve in their community. Mm -hmm. it, it changes. Yeah. So most people, I would say, like in the business world know that or should know that um, team is an essential ingredient to a successful business. Mm -hmm. So can you share a little bit about your team, what their skills are like, et cetera? So... My team's skills are very different across the board. They have one thing, a couple of things they take very seriously. We have what we call the Junto Bot values, and we really look for those. So we look for people who want to make the world 5% better. They're not just out for themselves, right? We look for people who are looking to make themselves better. They're looking to make the world better, but they start from a status point of, I'm not good enough right now. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I have to make a change in my life. I have to be better. Right? Because we all need to be better. So they're constantly looking to improve themselves. It doesn't mean they're not good enough. They're not bad people. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is they want to make themselves better than they mm -hmm. are. And this is the NFL. They're bringing it. The NFL is a top-notch organization. You get on that field, you better bring your A game, or you're never getting on that field again. And everybody in our organization brings that mentality. If you don't bring that mentality, you're out. I don't want anything other than excellence. Excellence with ignorance is fine. We can solve ignorance. I can't solve a lack of desire for excellence. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that I learned a long time ago is when you're creating a business, you got to eat your own oatmeal because that's how you figure out where it's broken. And you got to make sure if it's valuable enough for you to sell to somebody else, you better use it yourself. Mm -hmm. So um, I marketing software company, we used our own marketing software to market ourselves. And that was the secret to our success. Because we could more cheaply market ourselves than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And we knew more about it than anybody else because we did it all the time. Same thing here. We run an apprentice program. We train high-performing operators and we only hire from the apprentice program. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you. I literally every day, hey, I'd love for you to hire me as your, as I've been working in marketing for 20 years. Screw you. I don't need you. I don't mm -hmm. want to work with you. 
I want to work with people who don't know anything about marketing and we can work together to get you excellent because then Mm -hmm. I can create a support system to train people how to be excellent marketers and I can help you learn how to be an excellent marketer. And then you go off to work in a small business somewhere in a business in your community and you make them excellent or you get bit by the Huntobot bug and you decide to stay with us. Either way, you're an excellent employee. Mm -hmm. Our apprentice program is just getting started. We've got, you know, we're in our third cohort for marketing, but we're opening up an apprentice program for salespeople and we're opening up our product apprentice program. That's software, data analytics, hardware, so forth. We're looking to raise funds for our first physical location in which we're going to be teaching the apprentice program. We're also going to be teaching the venture school and we're going to have a prototyping uh, short run manufacturing program and a prototyping program to help small businesses who want to prototype hardware or fulfill on their Kickstarter, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So those are the team members we're looking for. The only place where I hire outside of the apprentice program is people who have revenue generating capability. So we just brought on board this amazing woman, Delfina, who's going to be running our Latin American business. Why? Because she's run a startup incubator in Mexico for 15 years. She knows Mexican government. She knows the Latin American government. She can talk the talk. She can walk the walk. She can talk to people and get people to give her money because they trust her because they know that she knows what she's talking about. That's the type of person that we hire externally. I will not hire anybody who does not generate revenue from day one outside of the apprentice program, because I can teach you how to generate revenue. And Mm -hmm. that makes the entire platform and the entire ecosystem stronger, where I can hire from outside. That makes nothing stronger. It makes me stronger. It makes my company stronger. It doesn't make the ecosystem or the product stronger. And that's our team. Okay. Okay. So now we're moving into the phase of fun questions. Um, so this cool. is where you can kind of bring your own like personal opinion on stuff like slightly unrelated to your business. Um, yep. But first, can you tell us about a program? This could be a community or startup, something like that. That's really valuable to the community that you think people should know about, like a resource. Sure. There's two that I always recommend. Camelback Ventures in New Orleans. Excellent program. Excellent. Aaron Walker has done just such an amazing job with that company. Basically, really interesting take on startup incubation. So definitely check out Aaron Walker and Camelback Ventures. Always blown away with what they're doing. And the other one is my old boss, when she stepped away from the Zahn Center and bequeathed it onto me, she went to go work for this great company called Company. It's very confusing. The company's name is Company. Oh, I was like, is this I was not consulted during branding, but it's called Company Ventures, uh, and they have a large building right by Grand Central in New York. Called it used to be called Grand Central Tech, and she runs the social impact venture firm within that company. And I'm probably butchering that, but mm-hmm. Lindsay Siegel is her name. It's called Company Ventures, and it's really great. They're doing some really interesting, great stuff. Um, yeah, but those are the two I, I always recommend. Cool. Can you tell us about a book or a podcast that you've read or listened to lately that has really blown your mind? Yeah. So my uh, TBR list, right? These are the books I'm reading. The top one is the one I'm reading now. Uh, It's Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling and Why It Matters and What to Do About It by Richard Reeves. I saw an interview with him and I was just blown away by the interview because something that I noticed in my struggle to enfranchise women 
in my struggle to enfranchise non-white founders because they've been left behind and we're not given the resources. I found male founders, I found white founders who deserved a chance and were not the bro founder or the Ivy League founder that I felt was getting too much of the resources. Uh, and I, you know, I found myself struggling with the fact that, you know, we're being a little mean to boys. We're being a little, we're, we're moving. It's not a zero sum game. We live in a, we live in a world where power isn't, isn't a, uh, a win loss ratio. I, I don't have to enfranchise you by disenfranchising mm-hmm. a boy. And this guy's really digging into that. And I'm really learning some very interesting things in here. Um, that's where that whole thing about boys' brains maturing slower than women's mm-hmm. brains. I found that really interesting because it like really mirrored my experience in school. Mm-hmm. Like I really struggled in school and I didn't really start to find my pace until I was in my 20s. And really, honestly, in my 30s is when I really started to kill it. But I was just, I was a boy. I wasn't a man. I was a boy. I was a, I was expected to be a man, but I was a boy. And this, mm-hmm. he's talking about this, but he's also talking about the structure around what we've done with the economy, like the shipping out of the manufacturing jobs. And then he's talked about um, the fact that uh, we've removed the general societal structure around what it means to be a man. Used to be a man, finds a woman, makes children, provides for the children, provides for the family, protects the family. Mm-hmm. That, that was the role of the man. Now we're saying, no, that's not your role that's just as equally a woman's role and that's valid it's 100% and like all of the the value that we've gotten out of the last 30 years 40 years of women's rights is that women are just as valuable as men but what happened is because we had this crutch of men are great women are weak that allowed us to create this system that was not working because we were doping it up and when you remove that and you have it equal all of a sudden men start falling behind and it was really fascinating, like reading this. I'm like, that's a really good point. Is that mm-hmm. like, it's not that men, we need to we need to enfranchise men so that they can keep up with women, mm-hmm. or that we need to reduce what we're doing with women because everything we're doing is incredibly valuable. It's that the system is broken and we didn't realize it because we were doping it up because mm-hmm. we were putting our thumb on the scale for men. And when we took a thumb off the scale for men, you realize how badly they're actually doing. So how do you help a boy become a man and learn to live equally with a woman and respect a woman equally? Anyway, so that's how I just found it fascinating. It's blowing my mind. One of the values of Hunter about is going where nobody else is. Mm-hmm. I don't hear enough about how to enfranchise boys. Yeah, well, that's good. You know, cool. So. Okay, before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to tell us about, share, pitch? The floor is yours. Uh, yes, after exhaustive work, we have finally gotten our first e-learning package off the ground and recording. up till now we've pr- been providing our training services in a cohort and lecture environment with one-to-one lectures non-recorded lectures one-to-one mentor meetings in a structured cohort environment we've spent an exhaustive amount of time recording all of these into these small pre-recorded interventions that are put together in a package so that companies can consume them at their leisure. Uh, startup founders can consume them at their leisure. You can walk you through a wizard, which will take you from 
I want to start a business, but I don't know the problem that I want to solve to, and now I really understand that problem. We're putting together these packages of four separate pieces, problem, product, business, team. Mm-hmm. So you solve the problems, no pun intended, solve the problem of identifying your problem, solve the problem of identifying the product, solve the problem of identifying the business and solve the problem of identifying the team. Mm-hmm. And then you can go forth and create a business confidently. Yeah. The output basically being in an application to a venture school like 500 Startups or Techstars or Y Combinator or a small business loan program from your bank. It'll create your business plan, but in a very robust way. That's not just a business plan because a lot of times I see these business plans and they're like, okay, but how do you implement that? There's no plan in your plan. It just seems like you did homework for class. Like there's no, you can't mm-hmm. implement it. This will be implementable. The other side is our apprentice program. We're expanding it out. So January, uh, we're bringing on our marketing team. So if this goes out before December 23rd, we're hiring marketers. If this goes out after December 23rd, we're hiring salespeople, we're hiring data analysts, and we're hiring more marketers. (laughs) We're we're expanding that program. So Cool. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Chief Everything Officer. This podcast is brought to you by Huntobot with many thanks to our listeners and guests. Today, we heard from Huntobot CEO Devin Borsinger about how he got started with his idea for Huntobot. We hope to bring other entrepreneurs in for interview on future installments of the show, so stay tuned in for more and have a wonderful day.